Welcome to God's Country, the ramblings of two bumbling Catholics in regional Australia seeking to pray much and suffer well. My name's Chris De Silva, and I'm joined here by Ben Uphill. How are you going, Ben? I'm good, Chris. How are you? Very well. Very well. So, we have come together today uh, for our very first introductory episode to God's Country, where we explain a little bit about what we mean by God's country, because that sounds like quite a generic term, I suppose. Um, we feel driven to a, a life in the country, and so we've moved from the quite, city. Quite deliberately driven. Yes. Yeah. Dr- not, not as in like we got driven out of the city. We, <laughs> <laughs> we chose to drive ourselves into the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, and why, why would you say, Ben, why, why would you say from your own perspective, that, that we've been driven this way? Uh, well, uh, first of all, prayer and discernment uh, in a desire to live wholly for God. Um, we came across each other trying to discern what God wanted for our lives. And uh, like Jesus was div- driven uh, into the desert after his baptism, uh, we have been driven to the countryside. Uh, I think the call was... Uh, Pretty similar for both of us, um, looking like it meant a whole life change, work, home. Um, we both come from the city. Uh, yeah, that kind of drive. It was it, it really a response to God's call, uh, a response of love and a response to cut off all those pieces of fat on your soul and lifestyle in order to pursue and live a holy existence and so you hear a lot about the city of god you know saint augustine wrote a book called city of god um there's been a more recent book also on the city of god written by timothy flanders of meaning of catholic um there's a book on of private revelations on the mystical city of god as well um but nothing really called god's country uh so why are we god's country would you say as opposed to the city of god well, I don't think it's opposed. Uh, the con- God's country and the city of God are not opposed to one another. In fact, I think uh, for uh, what we're trying to achieve is a very traditional and classical Catholic thing to live um, holy, as I said before, but really bring to earth uh, God's kingdom. Um, we, it's not, yeah, there's no opposition between God's country and God's city or the city of God. What I think is particular in our situation is that we feel that current state of cities does not allow for uh, the genuine interpretation of God's city to exist or city of God to exist. Um, mm. you know, uh, my experience of cities is really limited to Sydney, uh, although some other European cities in very short experiences. Um, but it, what we have in mind uh, to live according to Catholic social doctrine, uh, according to virtue. Um, I think it can be done in the cities, but there's so many obstacles. And, um, I mean, the, a, a holy life already has so many struggles. Why would you uh, engage an obstacle that is so readily uh, able to be dismissed with? And it's easy to say that, that it was probably unimaginable for St. Augustine when he was writing his City of God to think about our metropolitan, hyper-industrialised, mm. millions and millions of people living on top of each other sort of cities that are in many ways, they put themselves at odds with what the authentic Catholic or Christian community, you know, the town kind of centred around the parish that sort of thing that you see developing around the time of Christendom. Mm. Um, our cities, in many ways, ever since the Industrial Revolution, have moved us away from being able to form a community that's built on on virtue and holiness like the one that we're trying to form right now. So I guess you could say we're, we're, we're pioneers at the beginning of a project um, where there have been quite a few families, a significant amount of families... Uh, mostly younger families coming together in a regional centre to try and live the gospel in a radical way. Yeah, also in a city, I, like a lot of the benefit of 
living in a city is null and void nowadays. Mm. Where you know people live, living in community in a community in a city is, uh, I don't think any easier than it is in a, in the countryside. My experience of living in a city in Sydney, in particular, was that people would travel hours and hours to attend a parish that was uh, faith filled, uh, where you know the teaching was wholesome and uh, unquestionable. Uh, and, and that's not community life. Travelling hours uh, to be in communion with someone who knows and loves Jesus Christ and then having to travel hours back to your regular life, there's, there's, uh, a divert, like, there's no organic hole in your life in that situation. As much as we'd like it to be an organic hole, it, it, it doesn't exist in those cities. My wife and I, you know, living in Sydney... Uh, started attending our local parish and um, we were glad for it uh, to have it so close. We were very close to our local church, but eventually we realised that um, in order to grow in holiness, there was we needed to find a place where we were supported and where we could give as well. Um, and that ended up being an hour and a half or an hour and 45 minutes from where we were living in Sydney to another location in Sydney, um, yeah, it was. Uh, we ended up living in isolation. We had uh, mass and and good fellowship and good uh, programs or involvement. Uh, Thirty five kilometres, an hour and a half away, um, but the rest of our daily life was in isolation. And what we've been able to achieve achieve here with you, yourself, Chris, and a few of these other families that have moved here, is a more committed base. Um, all close together. Uh, I think it was just last week, a family who we know and love uh, called and said, there's this situation going on. Uh, we need to drop our kids off at your house now <laughs> and attend to this situation. And it was available. Like that, that was an option that was available to them and to us. Uh, and it wasn't available in our lives in Sydney. Uh, so I'm very grateful for that. And uh, that... Yeah, the tyranny of distance, which is so often associated with country living, mm. uh, is not an obstacle here, but it is in the city. Uh, even though the, the distance might only be 35 kilometres or, or even less in a lot of instances, it's, it's um, uh, yeah, tyranny of distance and time is a struggle, a struggle in city life, and we've overcome it. It yeah. is, and I think it, it points to sort of the difference between our generation... Gen Y, millennials versus older generations where they understood more the, the good thing, you know, one of the good qualities of probably most generations before us is that they understood that they should grow where they're planted. Mm. Where us, especially growing up in a city context where there are many different parishes with different spiritualities or different theological bents, you could say, um, we would choose the one that we identified with the most. That's something specific to, to us as a generation where we're willing to travel and make sacrifices in order to make the choice that we identify with the most rather than putting in sacrifice in the hard yards in one particular place to make it as good as it can be. And that's something that we're trying to do now coming into a regional centre together is to, to plant ourselves here, but to come with the sense of permanence, you know, obviously discerning whether that's God's will, mm. but we have at this point discerned that it is God's will. Uh, to have a sense of permanence about being where we are right now and making God's kingdom come in this place. Yeah, and, and why does it demand a radio show? I think uh, a lot of people want uh, the raw and uh, the the core of life to be lived. My wife and I really kind of got together based on that. Um, there's that quote by the pagan pantheist, uh, albeit uh, somewhat inspiring, Henry David Thoreau, 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 uh, whatever he's... I, don't, I can't pronounce it. Benedict. However you pronounce it yeah. in Australian. <laughs> <laughs> um, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach. And not when I came to die, I discovered that I had not lived. Uh, we want to live. We want to live for God. Um, that's what we're doing here. Uh, we hope you enjoy the journey.
So we'll see you after the break with some tunes. is God's country We pray for rain and thank Him when it's falling cause it brings a grain and a little bit of money we put it back in a plate I guess that's why they call it God's country I saw the light in a sunrise sitting back in a 40 on the muddy riverside getting baptized in holy water and shine with the dogs running Definitely one of mine. <laughs> so welcome back after the break, everyone, to God's Country. Again, this is our introductory episode. Um, we've just done a very brief introduction to what we even mean by God's Country, and we want to use the rest of this episode to begin defining some terms that we will be using a lot that maybe uh, deserve something of a definition that is broader or different to how you might use the terms yeah. otherwise. And, and not just, uh, well, it might not be a complete definition now, but introduce yeah. a few key terms uh, that we will be exploring or, or what what has gone into our own discernment in our move to the countryside. Yeah, and, and, the, and as we introduce these terms, it'll also give you a broader understanding of what we mean when we say God's country and mm. why we're doing the show in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And the first term is convenience. Convenience. Uh, I don't know... Uh, the, there, there might be a better order for the words, but uh, this is the order you're getting them in. So You know how <laughs> you know people break down the etymology of words and mm. con means with, but I have no idea what venience means, do you? No. <laughs> we probably need We know what wife. convenience means, but we don't know what venience means. So mm. we might have to get back on to you on venience. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we can have... My wife is basically an etymologist. Uh, she could probably tell us. Fantastic. Um, 
I, I was thinking that we could have her on as a guest uh, yeah. because she's always railing and rambling against convenience in the world. Very good. Uh, yeah, <laughs> very, very good. Very good. Indeed. That is something we endorse <laughs> in <laughs> yeah. God's country. So why, why do we endorse that? Uh, a few reasons. Um, basically because uh, things that are convenient are easy. Well, look at the de- de- definition, whether we know what venience means, with or without uh, venience. But convenience means uh, the desire and pursuit of comfort. Um, but all, there's also, uh, I think, it, when I was looking this up on Merriam-Webster, the fourth mm-hmm. definition says the avoidance of discomfort. Um, yes. And I just can't reconcile those definitions with the Christian life. Um it's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. Are you looking it up? I'm trying to look it up, uh, but there's no definition for venience, so maybe oh, we have okay. to go to another language. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Latin. A, 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 as we were, convenience. Um, um, the, the, the thing that stood out to me and the reason why I also was in favour of highlighting convenience as a key term to talk about in our first episode and beyond um, is that convenience is in many ways the enemy of the cross and the cross is what Jesus has called us to take up every day. So if he's called us to take up the cross every day, yet we have a world that we live in, which is so ordered in basically every aspect towards avoiding the cross. That's something to be keenly aware of, not just to keep in the back of our minds, but to actually put in the front of our minds. Um, to, to understand that, that, we live in a society that's actively trying to lead us away, not only from the cross, but from growing in virtue as well. Yeah. Um, it, 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 this is a poor analogy, and it does not go to the heart of much of what we're trying to say. But one example of an inconvenient choice my wife and I made a couple of years ago, and very pertinent probably to most people listening, including myself still, is we a couple of years ago we bought ourselves a new laptop, mm-hmm. and... Uh, I'm not very tech, but uh, the laptop came with an advertisement for a free month of Netflix. And I thought the laptop came with a free month of Netflix. So I thought, not, that's not why we bought how it. How exciting. Yeah, how exciting. <laughs> anyway, so you open up the laptop. That was there. We thought, oh, well, we'll try our free month of Netflix and see if that's something we want to spend $9.99 a month on. Yeah. So we were enjoyed probably maybe an hour and a half of Netflix across the space of a month. Um, I can't remember what we watched, uh, which is also a telling detail. <laughs> Good on you for not binging, though. Um, well, it was probably more circumstantial than <laughs> holiness, but yeah. uh, nonetheless. Anyway, on, it came to the last day of us trying to work out whether we wanted to pay for Netflix or mm. get rid of it. Mm-hmm. We went down the street doing some kind of shopping, uh, grocery shopping, and we found our local library. we just moved houses as well as buying a new laptop. And uh, we found our local library. We thought, oh, let's go and have a look in the library. Anyway, lo and behold, the library has a billion DVDs and TV series, all for free. Uh, it just requires you to turn up in person and return in person uh, to view. You can select more deliberately. You, what you take home is what you're able to watch. You can't actually take the whole library home. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, it, it was obviously... So we, we didn't renew Netflix. And we did subscribe to the library, which was free. Uh, and we hired a various DVD TV programs mm. and things like that. And uh, the rest is history. We don't have Netflix. Uh, never will. Um, and we've chosen the inconvenient path, which has proven all the better. But the interesting thing about that, though, is that the path that you chose uh, 20 years ago would have seemed like the most convenient path. Like if you go back 20 years. But in, in what way? In terms of there was no Netflix, ah. and so and so a library of free subscription that had so much choice that it would have been oh. really really convenient. Yeah, uh, it it shows you where we're going as a society. Mm. Society where it's everything needs to be as easy as possible. There should be the least amount of muscle reflex movement possible. <laughs> yeah, it's Wall-E. You know those yeah. floating tubs with the, yeah. those jelly humans floating that's around? Right, yeah. that's, that's the, the least amount of um, connections between neurological synapses in yeah. order to get something done mm. or to satisfy some sort of desire, the better. Yeah, 
So if you're pursuing conven- convenience, uh, you're probably also cutting yourself off from holiness, deliberately mm. and indeliberately, yeah. or indirectly. Uh, one th- other thing that my me- wife mentioned when she reviewed our list of terms um, was the fact that convenience, uh, and she understood some of our definitions, uh, convenience is actually the only negative. Uh, all the others can be interpreted negatively or have uh, some definition of what they are not, but we we use them in the, in the positive sense, like this is something that is desirable, yes. whereas convenience it, we're using as a something that is desirable. not desirable and not profitable to pursue. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's any significance in that, but basically what God... Uh, it, well, there is something uh, to say about that. And God's country and our own personal journeys has been the evolution of... has been the uh, the discernment of away from one thing and towards another and we're go- and a lot of what the world offers is convenient um, and we're, we're moving away from that towards something good so there's both the negative where we're desiring to cut something off in our lives we're desiring to avoid things um, not for the sake of comfort uh, and but we're also responding out of love towards something else uh, and I think that kind of introduces somewhat our next terms of virtue, virtue and holiness, and holiness yeah. um, as, uh, you know, uh, the highest virtue is definitely charity. And we're trying to move in love towards a holy way of life. Uh, virtue without hol- the, the reason we've coupled these is virtue without holiness is stoicism and holiness without virtue is idyllic daydreaming um even our bishop agrees with that when i was speaking that's right you have to tune into a future episode for us to go deeper into what we mean by stoicism and uh idyllic daydreaming if you don't know what stoicism is Mm. uh, but i think we all know what daydreaming Mm. is Mm. um i I think uh the other point of why virtue and convenience is uh pertinent at this point is uh we're trying to avoid convenience, but when also like vir- the virtue is the golden mean, as a lot of saints will say. Mm. Um, and the opposite extreme of that is discerning that whatever is hardest to undertake must be God's will for me. And you said this to me the other day uh, as the opposite side of convenience. Uh, and that's not a correct interpretation no. either, or that's yeah, not, that's not the way to discern what that's is not, God's that's, will. Yeah, that's not the, what the golden mean is with regards to to convenience. So virtue and holiness help us to find the path of moderation, which really relies on us becoming dependent on the voice of God in our lives rather than uh, just using our own will and intellect and relying on those things alone to say, okay, this is what I'm called to do. It's just the harder thing. Uh, not necessarily, mm. not necessarily, but we are called to the cross every day. Amen. And uh, we'll, yeah, we'll continue more with our terms after the break. I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger Traveling through this world below There's no sickness, no toil or danger In that bright land to which I go I'm going there to see my father and all my loved ones who've gone on. I'm just going over Jordan. I'm just Oh, 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 oh,
again i'm pretty sure good welcome back to god's country with chris and ben um so before the break we were just talking about the key terms of virtue and holiness and of convenience as in we're trying to basically avoid convenience but head towards virtue and holiness uh the next terms that we want to talk about just in this introductory episode uh subsidiarity and solidarity. I think the best anecdote to go to to begin exploring what subsidiarity really is is uh, when when Saint Mother Teresa was interviewed after winning the Nobel Peace Prize. The journalist asked her, you know, you know so much about doing good for so many people. What advice would you give us to bring world peace to make the world a better place? And she just said to the journalist, "Go home and love your family." Mm. To which the journalist was a little bit flabbergasted. But Mother Teresa, being a good leader of a religious order, understands Catholic social teaching. She understands the social doctrine of the church and that subsidiarity is the the baseline, basically, where we have to look... There's hierarchy in our lives. Um, a little bit of a trigger term for some people, but anyway, it's, it's just the way it is. Um, and it begins with our relationship with God. And then I remember when I was when I was a volunteer with Net Ministries, we gave uh, a talk or a retreat day for students on social justice. But it was actually like really getting to the core of it. It wasn't cringy social justice warrior stuff. It was about subsidiarity, really, looking back on it. And so the the base of the talk that we would give was on circles of influence. Oh. And so subsidiarity is about circles of influence which begins ideally and first of all with our relationship with God because he created us and he sustains our lives and so our most important relationship with was is with him then it goes to your family so you know for you or I who are married the person in the next place who takes most priority is our wives then you know for me it's my children and then working relationships and parish community come after that where do friendships fall uh, friendships would fall probably in between family and work relationships, I would say. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say we've called to invest ourselves more in friends than in colleagues, 
especially because most of the things that you talk about with colleagues, at least in an average working relationship, would be work-related yeah. stuff, where friends is like you're sharing your life, uh, you're sharing deeper truths about yourself more vulnerably. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I would say friends is the next level after family. Yeah. Immediate family. Yeah, and I think with... Uh, I mean, you've pretty much said it, but spheres of influence really pertains to where your responsibility lies as well. Mm. Um, you're responsible first uh, with your family. <clears throat> uh, and I, I think, yeah, well, you said it with Mother Teresa. If you're not... Some people get the idea that subsidiarity is um, an optional thing or an interesting concept. Maybe people don't understand what it actually means, but uh, if you want to change the world or if uh, the world is going to change, uh, it starts with you and within your spheres of influence. Um, I don't know that anything more needs to be said about subsidiarity. No, well, I mean, the, the only thing is to maybe, that maybe might help people to understand it more is to also look a little bit about, uh, look at what it's not. Oh, yeah. um, and I think looking at what it's not is looking at how the global media tries to get us to focus our attention and even our efforts on global causes or what they want the current thing to be. And they want us to think that we can make a difference through forms of online activism, whether that's donating, whether that's liking and sharing a Facebook post or or what have you. Or correcting um, a Facebook post. Yeah, correcting somebody else's opinion <laughs> yeah. who we don't even know online. Yeah. Um, commenting under a news article, those sorts of things. <laughs> like those sorts of things are going to make a difference or, you know, we need to go and march for uh, Black Lives Matter or the Me Too movement or whatever it is. That's not to say... I'm not dismissing, you know, that there's that there's no truth in those things. But what I'm saying is we're supposed to give of ourselves in the fullest capacity, in the areas where we have most influence, uh, power and responsibility, which happens to be, first of all, family, God, family, friends, you know, the church community, our working relationships, maybe broader, the, the local community too, like the actual town that you live in. You can have a significant degree of influence if you build that up as well. And this, the, uh, to draw a link between subsidiarity and, and our choice for a regional centre, mm. uh, we have here uh, a very concentrated avenue to express um, our responsibility where we have uh, a town uh, and outside the bounds of that town there is fields and bush and nothing else Uh, and you could go out there till the next town till the next (laughs) town Um, and yeah if you want to change the like for me and you if we want to see change this is where we're going to actually see it Uh, we're going to see it in in the flesh in this town, not in New South Wales or in yeah. Australia, or um, yeah. yeah. So it's not it's not putting pitting global issues against local issues, but what it is to say is that we're called first of all, like in the Catholic understanding of how we flourish, uh, to work on our communities in those concentric circles as they ripple out, to the point where if we're doing those things well then we basically have hardly anything to give on a global level. Like, we're not really called to give much on a global level at all. But if everyone does it, the global uh, milieu will change as well. That's Um, true. That's true. If if everyone focuses on the local, then the global ends up changing. Yeah, Yeah. 100%. 100%. Solidarity. Uh, Yeah, solidarity. um, I mean, think about the word solid. uh, And then I think, you know... Standing together as in a twig snaps pretty easily over your leg on its own. But as soon as you bunch twigs together and the more you bunch together, the more impossible it's going to be to be able to, to snap them. And so, going, going back to subsidiarity with mm, solidarity, mm. Uh, you can't actually join together with or you, you and I can't join together with someone from England in order not to be snapped. You know, yeah. me and you can join together. In, yeah. in this town and with mm-hmm. their friends and, and whoever else and, and, and even not friends, you know, to lift up the cause of someone uh, downtrodden or whatever it might be. But yes. uh, solidarity is only effective when submitted to subsidiarity. That's right. And I think 
there are ways like like you've got to concede the point that there are ways that solidarity in more of a remote understanding of the purpose can of the definition can be realized in some way through through common interest groups um but it's never going to be fully realized without actually being in person with other people uh, in in community, basically. Yeah, we, really, finance is the only way you become solidaritous with <laughs> those removed from you personally. Um, that might actually come into economics a little bit yeah, as well. Yeah, we, we, which we will explore in further episodes hmm. when we know a little bit more about what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are you talking about? You've done very well with our two S's. You know, I it was it's interesting the solidarity stuff. Uh, every when you come across that word, it's usually associated with global solidarity. Issues, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. Which is very unfortunate because uh, it's essentially being usurped or hijacked or uh, yeah. separated from its genuine, true, uh, classical meaning. Um, yeah, so that's sad. Mm. Um, I can't remember what else I was going to say about that. How about we leave it there and we head to a break and we'll come back with you with our next terms for you. <laughs> Met a ghost of a king on the road when I first fell. Fire burning to my knees, to my knees I fell Met a ghost of a king on a road Words of fire He said, you are a lonely soul With a heart of stone That rakes against your thirsty bones Such a lonely soul Said I can show you I can save you But we need to go when no chariot can take you where the river meets the sand, there is water there that can quench your thirsty bones and make you well, make you of a king with every step I try to see beyond for a trace of the riverside but restlessness was my prize and then we came upon a golden shore but the voice of fire wasn't coming from a ghost no more my heart of stone came alive when my eyes were opened up and I saw that I had come where no chariot can take you Where the river meets the sand There is water that can quench your thirsty bones and make So I know beside the river and I drank until, I drank until, I drank until I died But something in the water must have brought me back, it brought me back, it brought me back to
Welcome back after the break, everyone, to God's Country, to our introductory episode. So before the break, we were talking about what subsidiarity and solidarity is all about. Um, and as the, the show goes on, you'll hear more about that. We'll hear a lot of references, really, to, especially to subsidiarity. But a couple of terms that we did want to go into before we finish the show, just in our final segment today. There's is, a few terms. A, a few terms in one which which are very related to each other. So we want to talk about what we mean when we say church or ecclesiology, um, as well as culture and tradition. Yeah, well, we need to define our ecclesiology and um, uh, or get find a definition of ecclesiology. I think um, one of the uh, ideas that I come across regularly nowadays by uh, from people is the idea that the church is malleable, um, uh, changeable, uh, like it can be made in the image to our, made in an image to our liking or, um, or done away with altogether, uh, especially like the hierarchical, what, what appears to be the institutional part of the church is a facade that is unnecessary um, and can be cut away uh, and done away with. Mm. So I think that is one of the topics uh, that we'll have to investigate um, because to live a holy life as a baptised Catholic, we need to decide and discern and come to a point where we recognise the truth of the church uh, and what that means, what, what our response of life is to that reality. Um, the other there's a couple of key terms here. They're all very connected because the church is, uh, has a culture or cultures are absorbed into the church. The other term there is we've got here is culture and tradition. And um, uh, I think this gets... Uh, tradition is something that might be slightly lacking in Australia. I'm married to a European and she's always lamenting the loss of her French traditions. Um, but one of the reasons why we're here, one of the reasons for this show, one of the reasons for each of our moves is to live a rich uh, life. And yeah, I, my, when I think of tradition, I just think of rich living, a rich way of life. Um, mm. I had, think, yeah, I think there's a, there's a thirst amongst especially millennials and probably gen z as well for who's gen z gen z is um when do they say millennials end like uh, around the year 2000 basically so people born after the year 2000 are gen z oh as i think that's like where the rough mark is somebody can correct me if i'm wrong yeah someone will (laughs) someone will correct me um and and millennials are basically what people born um from the mid 80s until until basically 2000 i guess um, so which, what, me and you are millennials. Which puts us in, in that category of millennial or Gen Y, same thing. But Same thing, man. We have a desire for tradition because we are, we are the, the anti-culture culture extraordinaire, mm-hmm. by which I mean that our whole life, we're in the past, in previous generations, cultural traditions which have been passed on by parents and grandparents, handed down, reverenced, were there was no room for them because that room became taken up by radio and then television and 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 magazines and movies and and so pop culture which isn't really culture like when we when we really begin to define what culture is we will go into more detail as to why pop culture isn't really culture in the in the full sense of the word um but we were we were filled with that and as we've come into adulthood i think I'm not just talking about Catholics or just Christians, but I think anybody in our sort of age group who's reflecting on their life a little bit uh, is longing for proper culture and tradition. And so we're trying to reestablish things like, for example, there's so many people who I know amongst my peers who at some point they would have had a family crest. Like that's just a simple, a very simple thing. Um, and Chris is a bourgeois, everyone. I could, <laughs> I couldn't find, I couldn't find any family crests in my family history. You know, both sides of the family, I couldn't find anything. 
and so you're just a peasant so I guess I don't know if I was just a peasant, but we, but my my wife and I just decided to design a family crest, and we said nice. this is going to be a tradition. So we're going to use this family crest for our family, but then we're going to make sure that we. So so she, for example, got me um, a ring made for uh, Christmas last year, I think it was, with the, with this crest on it, um, and to do something really special with the crest on it, and and to incorporate it into different parts of family life, and then. Um, the motto on the crest, you know, the different imagery that we've used influencing our spirituality as a family, how we choose to love each other and how we choose to, to form our children into saints um, is symbolized in something like a family crest. But I just think that kind of thing is missing and, and we're really longing for it. And it's not just me. It's, it's a lot of people my age I talk to and not just Catholics. Well, I found an uphill family crest. Cool. Um, I have no idea if I'm one of those uphills, though. <laughs> but I claim it every opportunity I can um, because deep down I'm probably a um, <clears throat> a lord of this or that castle and uh, it's just the inner lord in me trying to escape. No. Um, <laughs> the inner lord. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, I was thinking about tradition and um, I think your point there like about the family crest being somehow... Uh, it gives meaning or it's an exemplar an example of the your family's spirituality or those where you've come from like so it provides definition or gives definition as well tradition and culture do um and i think even on a really i was trying to go back to basics about where a tradition is or what is the heart of a tradition i've been it's getting cold where we live and uh wood chopping and wood stacking is becoming a real feature of life Mm-hmm. And I kind of thought, uh, in a sense, the seasons are a tradition within which humans have to exist mm-hmm. and, and certain practices happen um, over and over and over again yeah. every season. So wood wood stacking and yeah. chopping and all that being one of them. Based on necessity. Based on necessity. And what happens with... Humans do this all the time everywhere they are. They form little cultural habits that may or may not beget an actual tradition, um, but... Uh, they imbue activities with a spirit or that that actually goes beyond that activity itself Uh, usually because they don't want to do an activity on their own so you get someone else to stack the wood with you and you end up talking about uh, designing chairs and all of a sudden every winter when it's wood stacking time it's chair design time Uh, something like that and so uh, maybe even you'll start to discuss uh, you say oh I've got to go and to my chair design discussion, which actually just means you're going wood stacking, but <laughs> yeah. um, basically you could remove the wood stacking out of that scenario and there's still an activity that persists. There's a movement that persists beyond the mundane activity. Um, and that's a very mundane example, um, but uh, all of life is littered with these things. Uh, we were talking in my house recently about um, when is it okay to light the fire on the theme of uh, uh, cold and fires? And one of the things we we're talking about is how in the morning there's a there's kind of a cultural tradition, or you, you end up you bookmark your day, especially in the morning. You have, you have prayer, you go to breakfast, you, you've got this method or routine. Yeah, routine, yeah. Um, and that can be lacking. Well, it it, it was lacking in our nighttime practices. Okay. So the culture. Uh, of a fire doesn't exist in our family yet because we haven't lived in a cold climate for very long Mm. and we haven't developed a life that revolves around the requirements of warming a living room with a fireplace rather than pressing a button to get that uh, AC going. And you see sometimes people just get into the habit of lighting their fires like even when, like over the weekend, there were some warmer days and it's kind of uncharacteristically warm, but we still saw all those, all these houses around us with the chimneys going. And it's like, well, it's just because it's, you know, it's the end of May now. And so you light the fire. Like, that's what you do. You keep it going. Yeah. In um, a sense, the, the mm. human habits there have overrided the call the of The temperature. Nature. Yeah. Because yeah. at the moment for us, because like you said, like we're also new to such a cold climate and... We're checking, see, this is, I don't know, we're checking the weather app on our phone and saying, what's the minimum going to be? 
do we need to turn this fire on? When do we need to turn it on? Do we need to have it so that we can restart it in the morning? Like, and we're yeah. relying on on our smartphone to tell us whether that's a good idea or not. Mm, mm. Well, I, well, my habit so far has been to, at the hour of mercy, I go and close up our house, like the door, not the curtains or anything, but just the the temperature outside is starting to deteriorate the ten- the temperature inside. So I mm. close the gathered warmth from the day into the house. Uh, and normally, if it's if it is particularly cold, that's when I would also light the fire. Yeah. Uh, so that a, a fire is a funny. Oh, we don't need to talk about. It. Now we're getting into the principles of fire, but rather yeah. than culture and tradition. But with just a couple of minutes left, by the way. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we need to dive in. So the introduction. Uh, this is for you, listeners, not for Chris. He already knows this, but <laughs> um, we've introduced or we've made a list of key terms that we want to spend more time in consideration of. Uh, So the idea will be to have an episode on convenience, an episode on ecclesiology or church. Mm -hmm. and uh, Which may end up fleshing out into more than one episode. Well, I suppose it depends on... On how we go. So without further ado, that does bring us to the end of our first episode of, of God's Country. Uh, we do hope that you, you tune in again as we begin to introduce our first theme, which will be convenience. So the hot topic um, that we've brought up today, well, we think that it's the hottest topic to introduce, first of all, mm. uh, is, is convenience. So please uh, stay tuned for that. We thank Radio Maria very much for having us, um, and we will see you next time. God bless. This is God's country.